Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Hey guys, before we get started, please do us a favor, pop over to iTunes and give us a rating. It's quick, I promise. Although if you rate, if you actually make a comment, it's not super quick, but we would really appreciate either a star rating or a comment. And here's the truth. We honestly read every single one of them. In fact, uh, for the particularly nice ones, we send amongst uh, around via email amongst our team here at Creating a Family. It really helps us uh, get more listeners to our show, and it actually helps us uh, know that what we're doing matters and it is helpful. So please pop over there and do us a favor and give us a rating. Today, we're going to be talking about the Adoption Tax Credit 2019 with Josh Kroll, Adoption Subsidy Resource Center Coordinator at the North American Council on Adoptable Children, otherwise known as NACAC, and Becky Wilmoth, an enrolled agent and adoption tax credit specialist with Bill's Tax Service in Centralia and O'Fallon, Illinois. Hey, welcome back, Josh and Becky. Thank Thank you. Josh and Becky do this every year, and I feel like we're kind of having a reunion every year when we start talking. We catch up on what's been happening, what the weather is like, what how the family's doing. So uh, we are so appreciative of your expertise, guys. Um, and, and truly, you guys, I think of as the ultimate experts on the adoption tax credit. So for 2019, the adoption tax credit for qualified adoption expenses is 14000 $80 for each child adopted. And that is uh, regardless of whether they're adopted via public foster care or domestic private adoption or international adoption. All right. So this is a credit. So Becky, let's start with you. Uh, I think there is um, a lot of misunderstanding about what a credit is. So what is a credit and, and how does it differ from a deduction or some of the other forms of tax savings that we see? What a tax credit actually does is help cover your federal tax liability. Um, After your adjusted gross income, your taxable income is determined. Um, You know, years ago, we used to go to the tax book, and it would tell us how much tax we owe on that taxable income. What that tax credit does, it covers that federal tax. And what a deduction does is help lower your taxable income. For example, you know, if you have enough to itemize your deductions, um, like mortgage interest, real estate taxes, charitable contributions, all of those things, those are deductions that help lower your taxable income, where the tax credit actually helps cover the tax on your tax, um, taxable income. So uh, where a credit is so much better because it helps cover the tax liability that the IRS says, okay, you owe this much amount um, on your taxable income. So if you don't have federal tax liability for whatever reason, mm-hmm. should you still take the credit or, or should you just blow it off because you don't really, you don't owe, any, owe anything? Oh, no, you should absolutely go ahead and take the credit for several reasons. Um, number one, everybody's tax situation can change from year to year. And also in the event, that it does become refundable again, um, you, you, you have, once the initial year of claiming um, the adoption tax credit, you have five years to carry it forward. So a lot can change in six years. And if that becomes refundable again, 
you will have that carry forward credit sitting there waiting to be refunded to you. So it's a lot easier to carry it forward than to go back and amend your tax return you to claim that credit. So it's it's just a lot easier just even if you have zero tax liability, go ahead and take it and just keep carrying it forward. That way you'll have it there in the event that your tax situation changes or it becomes refundable again, which we are still advocating very strongly for. Yeah, I should mention for uh, those, it's interesting, It uh, people now who are considering and thinking about adopting and, and are, or have adopted and are, are thinking about the adoption tax credit, uh, most of them were not aware of or may have just heard rumors that there was a brief and shining moment way in the past that uh, it was a refundable tax. It is not a tax credit. It is not a refundable tax credit now. But we uh, are actively working to get it to be refundable. Let's go ahead, Josh, tell people where to go just from, uh, we usually do this at the end, but since we're talking about refundability now, where should people go who would like to help uh, join the advocacy for getting this tax credit to be a refundable tax credit again? There's a really easy website called adoptiontaxcredit.org. Um, and that's something that uh, NACAC and other groups um, uh, put together um, to sort of compile information, give advocacy tips, and let people know what current legislation, what bills, not legislation, but bills are out there that would make the tax credit refundable again. Okay, yep. And, and advocacy is a huge amount of those of us who have benefited uh, from adoption in general, but also uh, those of us who would like to see uh, adoptions more affordable, and the tax credit is certainly one aspect of that. We should all be involved in advocacy. Also, follow uh, either Creating a Family or NACAC, NACAC, uh, in any of the social media, and we both post and we share each other's posts uh, about uh, when we need people to take action from an advocacy standpoint. So, it's easy to do, and we, you know, and we really try to keep the when we, what we ask of you from an advocacy standpoint is usually pretty easy. So, uh, follow us and uh, and let's take action. Okay, Josh, we mentioned at the at the beginning that the adoption tax credit, and that is, I should mention, a federal adoption tax credit. There are certain states that have them as well, but today we're talking about the federal adoption tax credit, which applies to. Uh, your federal taxes. All right. So we, I, I mentioned at the beginning that it applies to adoptions from public foster care, uh, domestic private adoptions, and international adoptions. But there are other types of adoptions. So let's, I, I'll list a few. You tell me um, if they're covered or not. How about step-parent adoptions? No, but there's a caveat I'm going to put there. The law specifically okay. Says it's not to adopt your spouse's child, and so if you were, um, if you had a partner, a significant other, and you adopted their child, but you weren't married to that person, I'm quite certain that would qualify. Okay, no way, no. And the reason I bring same-sex that partner, second, are, right. are you talking about second parent adoptions second for same-sex parent. partners, or, or even uh, unmarried heterosexuals? Okay. Yep. Oh, okay. Right, because specifically in the law, it says for adopting your spouse's child. 
Becky, would you agree with that, that uh, same-sex partners, second-parent adoptions are unmarried heterosexual second pa- couples, right. second-parent adoptions are Correct. covered? Correct. As okay. long as they are, are not married, because like Josh said, the law is very specific. It is your spouse's child. So yep. let's say okay. you adopt your fiancé's or your boyfriend or girlfriend's child, um, you absolutely qualify as long as you are not legally married. And just because the IRS is the IRS, um, you know, a timing issue, don't get married that year because mm-hmm. they'll look at you more. I mean, like if you have any control over yeah. things, if I adopt, you know, my girlfriend's kid today, um, I wouldn't want to get married till 2021. Not that it would be wrong, but it's going to make your life easier if you've got that sort gotcha. of control. It, it will yeah, probably that makes produce sense. IRS letters if you do. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and so unless you really want to talk yeah. with the IRS. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you've, you haven't been married for this long. Just wait another year. Uh, all right. Uh, what about uh, embryo adoptions, which I must add is, is actually not a term that is, is really is used. The, the term that we are encouraged to use is embryo donation. But plenty of people call it embryo adoption, especially those uh, agencies that follow an adoption model for yeah. the placement of embryos. So uh, it is a term that's out there. So embryo adoption, Josh. I'm, uh, I don't think, uh, I mean, people may have personal feelings towards this, but I'm quite sure they're, the embryos don't have a legal status as a child. So it's adopting a child. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't, I'm going to say no. Okay. And that is what we've always told people as well, um, that uh, it is uh, it is not covered. All right. So, uh, Becky, can you get the credit for each adoption you complete, if even if they were more than one completed in the same year, or or adopting siblings, or uh, or two ch- unrelated children at the same time? Um, do you get just one credit, or does the credit go for the child, each child? It is. It is the credit is for each individual child. So if you draw adopt a sibling group of two or three, you you know, and you qual you meet the qualifications, um, you qualify for however many children you adopt. That's how many credits you would be able to claim. Gotcha. So you'd have those credits now. Whether or not you have the tax liability to be able to utilize all the credit is a different issue, but you will get the credit. Correct. Okay. So the way the IRS regulations are written, the Credit can be applied to qualified adoption expenses. So let's go through some uh, things that are typically considered qualified adoption expenses. Uh, and I tell you what, I'll just rotate between the two of you. Josh, we'll start with you. Agency fees, uh, the your your fee to your agency or your attorney to uh, to process the adoption or to do all the work that's associated with the adoption. Definitely. Yep. Okay, uh, <laughs> Becky, home home study cost. Absolutely. Okay, um, how about uh, a, a particularly tricky one? Is birth uh, parent expenses or expectant parent expenses? Uh, are they considered a? And, and and I should mention that different states have different rules on what is legal um, to uh, pay an expectant parent. Uh, or a birth parent after the placement. So, uh, but assuming it's legal in your state, 
can you cover a uh, your expected uh, parent expenses or birth parent expenses? I can't remember who I was on. It's Let's me. say Josh. I think it's your. I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm gonna. We're gonna attack a little here. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so the, the first. Well, I expected nothing less it, of right. you, Josh. So the, the first thing is. You know, we, we've been helping people. I've specifically been helping people with the tax credit since 04. Uh, and I'm not an, I'm not a tax professional like Becky is. So, um, and we generally hear from people uh, are confused to have questions or have problems. In, right. In the two refundable years, 2010 and 11, the adoption tax credit, they were asking for documentations. And we did hear from some families who were denied when they claimed those, even though they were legal benefits in those states. Now, we didn't necessarily hear from families who had those go through without any issue. The one thing I really wanna do as a caveat is um, a lot of private domestic adoptions, because that's who we're talking about with birth mother expenses here, have fees that exceed 14,080 last year, 2019's amount. I wouldn't sweat those types of expenses if all your other types that are very clear exceed that amount. Being able to claim another 4,000 in birth parent expenses isn't going to change how much credit you have available to you. If that makes sense? Yeah, let me say it another way, sure. uh, which is I think the same thing. Um, I, we have always told people that we did not think that birth mother, we are also not experts. So actually, uh, maybe, Becky. Hey, Becky, since you are the expert, yeah, okay, let's stop right now and just say, Becky, what is your thought on uh, uh, birth or expected parent expenses? Um, there's, there's, generally, it has always been that birth mother expenses were not um, qualified expenses. The reason being, um, not because it is on it either isn't or isn't on Form uh, 8839 instructions, but because in the IRS code, no living expenses are allowed mm. per IRS code. Um, so, and as you know, as always, we have always discussed before, 99% of the time, all of your other expenses are greater than the amount that you would be allowed to claim. Um, because the the form, the 8839 form, you know, is very specific. It says, you know, any necessary and directly related expenses for the principal purpose of legal adoption of an eligible child. And there is, you know, a few qualified expenses do not include um, funds that you've already received, violation of state or federal law. That's that that sentence right there is what you know, nixes the living expenses for a birth mother. Um, and it says for carrying out a surrogate parenting agreement, that's not qualified. Of course, we've already discussed the adoption of a spouse's child, um, anything reimbursed by an, an employer. And so the, the federal law part is because no living expenses are allowed per any other IRS code. And so, therefore, it violates federal law. Um, and like I said, generally, all of the other expenses that you're going to have for a domestic adoption are going to be far greater than the 14080 you know, without the birth mother expenses. So as a professional, 
um, I would not take the birth mother expenses just because it violates other federal law. Okay, so we have a little bit of a disagreement between the two of you, but, I'm, but I'm, all... I, I go with Becky. I'm I'm all good with that. <laughs> okay, okay. She's a professional. So birth mother expenses. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So birth mother expenses are not allowed. And 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 from and what I uh, the underlying thing that I also hear is be practical because don't if 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 you're not sure of an expense as whether it would be a qualified adoption expense. Don't take it because especially with uh, international or private uh, uh, domestic infant adoption, you're going to have, uh, chances are very good, you're going to have far more expenses than you do have a credit. So stick with the ones that are obvious and clear. Exactly. Okay, Becky, how about the cost for advertising or looking for an expectant mom who may be considering uh, adoption? Is that a qualified adoption expense? And let me point out that that can happen. Again, legalities differ in states on whether it's allowed. And there are also a lot of different ways it might look. It, it could be um, taking an ad out in a penny pincher or taking an ad out, uh, putting uh, uh, Facebook ads, uh, or it could be. Um, including the uh, services, the website services uh, that allow you to post your portfolio uh, and your profile, your parent profile. Uh, all of those would fall under the the really general term advertising. Yes, ma'am, it is. It, we, is. it is a qualified expense. And I, I agree with that, but we do know in the refundable years, the IRS is pushing back at that on some families yes. we talk to. Yeah, especially when it's refundable, there there will be a lot more, um, you know, because that, that was always the issue in 2010 and 11 with documentation yeah. issues is because yeah. so many people either didn't have the right documentation or didn't, you know, maybe they didn't come home with it or they didn't know what to send in. But well, there's a lot more picking apart of things when it's refundable versus when it is not refundable. The, yeah, for sure. The other thing I will say, though, to, in defense of parents and tax professionals in those years, the IRS didn't know what they were looking for specifically to start with, and were not doing a good job communicating what they needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It took it took people like Josh and I to say, okay, here here's what yeah. you need to send in. <laughs> yeah. Don't send the originals. Send good copies. Yeah. You know, put your social security number at the top of it, um, because they. The IRS really didn't know how it worked. No. Anyway, they were learning, too. I mean, this was yeah. news, new for them sure. as well. And, and unfortunately, it didn't stay uh, refundable for very long. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, the they didn't have years of experience no. in, in improving their system. All right. Next up, how about, and the Joshua's will be you, how about the cost uh, if a family chooses to use an adoption consultant? Uh, which an adoption consultant uh, can be defined different ways under different states' laws. However, generally, they are not placing, they are not searching for specific uh, uh, expectant parents, but they are consulting with explaining the process, often helping you fill out, uh, create your, uh, your profile, your portfolio, um, helping you uh, register with different agencies, uh, general advice such as that. All right, just filling people in on what a consultant is. All right, Josh, do you think that would be a qualified adoption? I'd like expense? to call Lifeline Becky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Becky. Yeah. Yes, that is so. a qualified expense 
because it says reasonable and necessary expenses. And we have, we all know adoptive families that have used a consultant to help them because it's not, it's not anything that violates federal or state law. It's not actual birth mother expenses. It would still go under the um, umbrella of advertising, you know, and fees, you know, all of those things. So yes, a consultant is absolutely qualified expenses. Okay. Um, and Becky, I'm asking to ask you this next one because I, it's, uh, uh, I want to uh, ask a couple of questions based on it. This is a question we got from Nate. He says, my wife and I are looking for an IRS enrolled agent in Southern California who has experience utilizing the adoption tax credit. It is quite difficult to find someone with experience in this, especially since we are trying to use the credit for a failed or a non-completed adoption, an attempt made in which we completed a home study and paid an advertising organization to post our portfolio. I have found two, uh, two I assume he means uh, um, tax specialists, who do not think it is possible, though I have heard that it is. So his question is, a couple of different things are failed domestic adoption attempts expenses allowed under the adoption tax credit would be his first question. The second one would be, could he claim the uh, advertising, uh, his home study, which we've already said yes, and the advertising organization, which we've already said yes. And then I'm going to ask a third question off of that. So first, uh, let's talk about failed adoption attempts. Yes, Absolutely. Um, for a uh, domestic adoption that is not final or has failed, you can claim um, the adoption tax credit. The stipulation of that is you have to wait the following tax year to claim those expenses. So let's say, for an example, um, you accrued um, adoption expenses that's not final or failed up to 2018. They were either paid before 2018 or they were paid in 2018. Then you could not claim them on your 2018 return. However, you claim them on your 2019 tax return, of course, that everybody is, you know, getting ready to file. Um, the only thing of that is, of course, you will not have a Social Security number or an ATIN number to tag to that failed or not final adoption. So your return will need to go in paper instead of electronic and put not final. And then what I personally recommend is um, get a uh, copy, uh, a good copy from the agency, the advertising agencies um, in the home study and attach it to that return. Normally I don't attach anything to a return, but in an adoption that's not final or has failed, go ahead and just make good copies and, and attach it to that uh, paper return. Um, but yes, you can absolutely take failed adoption expenses. I mean, you just have to wait until the following year. And then um, you have to absolutely advertising expenses are definitely a qualified expense. Okay, now what happens if, let's say, Nate and his wife um, are able, uh, that, that happened in, uh, let's say, 20, 18, they had a failed expense, a failed adoption. Um, now, in 2019, 
they were successful. They were uh, uh, matched and uh, the uh, birth parents relinquished their rights and they were successful at adopting a child. Do they get to take two credits, one for the failed and one for the successful? Uh, or do they just get one credit? Well, you have, it depends on if it was final. If it was final in 2019, I would say combine all of the expenses together. Because what happens is when you claim credit for an adoption that's not final or that has failed, whatever credit you received off of that failed or not final adoption must come off the successful one. And then you right. start over. Okay. Um, so generally, yeah. since it was that such a quick succession, um, you know, I, I would recommend just combine all of those expenses into the one successful one. That way you would just start completely over on, uh, as far as adoption, a tax credit wise, you would just basically start over. It is, it, and if you have, uh, if you have claimed, uh, basically the, uh, let me rephrase it in a way that, that makes sense to me. All right. You get the adoption tax credit for the adoption of a child and the failed placement, the failed adoption uh, counts as part of your effort to adopt one child. So when you are successful, all the costs, which would include the cost that you spent, even if you have to redo your home study, uh, the cost you spent for the first home study, all of that is considered part of the cost for the adoption of this one child. And if the expenses would otherwise be qualified uh, adoption expenses, they can be taken. Did I say that correctly? Um, yes. Really close, yes. Oh, all right. Oh, dear. Becky. Well, no, close doesn't count. So <laughs> close only counts in what hand grenades and whatever the or other thing is. Yeah. So like go that. ahead. Yes, I agree. Or shoes with what and you're grenades. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what part was I not 100% spot on on? Sometimes um, it, it's it's mainly how people perceive tax years. Um, because, you know, people think, oh, well, I, you know, the if it was paid in 2019. I'm doing my tax return in 2020. It doesn't work that way. Um, when you are filing your tax return on the 2019, even though you're filing it in 20, it's still your 2019 return and income and expenses and credits and all of those things. Um, so that's where sometimes people kind of get twisted up um, as far as okay. the expenses that were paid, you know, in 18 for the failed you know, and they would be able to take those on their 2019 return. However, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, I've, I've talked to Nate, um, and, and, and this is where Josh and I both come into a lot. Of people have told them, oh, well, you don't qualify, but you actually do. There's just a couple details that you got to figure out in between. Right. Okay. But the but the part that I was trying to make the point, and I, I sorry that I got confused, I messed up the years aspect. The part I'm trying to make the point of is that it's your the adoption tax credit applies to the adoption of a child, and if your failed attempt, you don't get a separate. If you are then successful in adopting, you can't then take two credits. Correct. Uh, Correct. Yeah, that's the point I was trying to make and, and did not make. Although I, I will say that if all you're doing is one child, in the examples, in the instructions, they talk about the successfully later on adopting twins, which ironically is what my neighbors did last year. Uh, well, I guess in 2018, 
um, they had a failed attempt and then later adopted twins successfully. So they had two credits, but that's because they successfully adopted two children. Correct. Right. Right. Yeah. That would make sense. That's awesome. Now, yeah. the second uh, or the third, I guess, question I want to ask about Nate's question is this. He lives in uh, Southern California and is looking for an, uh, a tax specialist in Southern California. Is it necessary? But he is right that obviously from his experience, not a lot of of tax preparers are very familiar with the adoption tax credit. Now, some are obviously, but but many are not. Do you need to use a tax preparer that is in your uh, region, in your location, in your city, or can you go? outside and just there would be somebody who is located you know anywhere else uh, can you maybe even in Illinois um, can you use that uh, person uh, or do you need to, are there advantages to being uh, using someone who is local to you well, Becky that was my, a question to you yeah Sorry. absolutely um, you know the, the most important thing is whether they're local or not is not to me is as important as as they have the experience um, obviously, enrolled agents are the highest license that you can get with the IRS because we specialize in taxation. Um, we pass three federal, stringent federal exams to obtain that designation. Um, the first thing you need to ask them is how many adoption tax credit returns have you done? Um, mm -hmm. um, because of technology is a wonderful thing, um, you know, most, most tax, professional tax places um, do tax returns all over the United States now. Um, enrolled agents are licensed for all 50 states. Um, so I do taxes for all 50 states. I represent clients for all 50 states. And we have a secure portal. Um, I did 42 different states last year. So, you know, number one, you need to ask the, your, the preparer, whether they're local or not, how many adoption tax credit returns have you done? Are you familiar with the law? Um, how many cases have you won? You know, have you won all your cases? Um, if not, what's your percentage? I mean, those are things that, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't walk into a doctor's office and them not be a licensed professional physician, you know, and when, especially mm -hmm. when you're dealing with this large amount of money, you know, you don't want to take the chance because, um, you know, I, I amend tax returns all year long. Or either someone who actually qualifies and was told that they didn't by more than one person that was a tax preparer. So local is not as, as important as experience and knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But I will say, and not to, I mean, obviously Becky's an expert and fabulous, um, but this tax credit is often not that complicated. And people can True. do it themselves, too. If yeah, people don't feel comfortable with that, one. they don't, you know, all for it. But this is, I got into a Facebook tiff a year ago with someone saying, no, this is too complicated. Only a couple of people in the world can do this. And it's like, no, people can have done this themselves yeah. and they still can. Right. Doing the That's form a valid is not point. complicated. Doing, doing yeah. the form is not the, where, where the issue comes in is dealing with it afterwards. Um, because there have, you know, been a lot of cases, um, yeah. where we have had to fight the IRS, you know, and, and we've won every case, 
Um, but I agree with Josh. The form is not the complicated part. I mean, there's mm -hmm. particulars on which type of adoption, when to claim it, you know, yeah. all those things, documentation, all of those things. And that's, and that's one of the reasons that Josh and I do what we do is to help families. Mm -hmm. Here's, you know, we're not saying you have to come to us. Here's the information, you know, to help you do that. You know, if you want us to help you, we'll be more than happy to. Um, but here's what you need to do. Well, and let's note that in, 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 in most often it is going to be cut and dry. Your expenses are going to be out uh, far greater than the, uh, well, especially if you're doing uh, domestic infant or uh, international. Correct. Your expenses are going to be greater than the credit. There are tried and true uh, expenses that you know are going to be your agency fee, your home study or whatever. And so you're going to get to the credit and you're going to have easy documentation. So that's, but it, it, that, that's cut and dry. Generally, where you see people who are struggling is, as in Nate's case, with a failed adoption yeah. uh, or, or things like that where it's outside the usual. And that's when you often will find that you don't have, um, but you, you don't have professionals that know. However, um, I can't tell you the number of people who have told us that they have uh, had their uh, tax preparer uh, listen to this course and say, you know, if, to get the information. Uh, for the tax preparer. So anyway, it's it's possible to be done. Uh, before we get off of failed uh, adoptions, Josh, let me just confirm, what about a failed international adoption? Because if an international adoption fails, there's often significant expenses, uh, depending on at what point in time the adoption falls apart. Unfortunately, they are out of luck. The international requires that the adoption be final. There's um, question, there, there there's some flexibility about when it's considered final um, and that can be found in revenue two different revenue procedures and I'm happy to talk to people on that um, you know and it depends on if it's a Hague country or not um, but it had to, to claim this credit and you know the biggest um, example in the last decade is when Russia closed down or maybe it's more than a decade at this point those families were very unfortunately out of luck with all the money they had paid out yeah, that's for sure. Well, that's a great segue uh, into when can you claim the adoption tax credit? Uh, so let's go ahead, Josh, and I'll have you take that away. Let's start with, uh, let's see, let's claim a, a, a domestic infant if you have adoption, adoption expenses for a domestic infant. Um, if you're in process, um, you can claim the credit like a failed adoption the year after you pay them. So sometimes people take a couple of years. Let's say I started the process in 2017, I paid something in 2017, I paid something in 2018, and I paid something in 2019 when I finally got placement and I'm gonna finalize here in 2020. Well, the 2017 expenses I can claim on my 2018 taxes, my 2018 expenses I can claim on my 2019 taxes, and then my 2019 and 2020 taxes, because I'm finalizing in 2020, I'll claim a year from now when I do my 2020 tax. Got it. Okay, so that's domestic infant. Now, what about international? And you imply that there might be a distinction whether you're adopting from a Hague Convention country or a non-Hague Convention country. Let me pause for a second and just briefly um, explain to people what we mean by that. Uh, you know, adoption is just like anything else. Uh, we have our own language and our own abbreviations. Uh, 
and Hague uh, stands for when you hear people talk about a Hague country, it means there uh, the country that has is a member of or has signed the uh, Hague Treaty for inter the place intercountry adoption, and uh, and and you can adopt from a country that has signed or not signed, and that that would be known as a Hague country or a non-Hague country. So, uh, take it away, Josh. Um, basically, not until final. And the the issue that comes up with the two, you know, the, the distinction between Hague and non-Hague, um, and I can't remember what the exact distinction is, um, is when is it considered final? I think in most cases, Becky might know um, if it's adopted, if it's finalized in country, the country that you actually go to and are getting the child from, that is considered finalized. Um, you could also, you know, if you're, you might run into phasing out the amount of credit you can use. Um, I think there might be situations where you can um, claim it when you do a readoption in the U.S. Let's say I, you know, I did in-country in November of 2019, and I'm readopting here in Minnesota in January of 2020. That might allow me some flexibility be between 19, claiming it in 2019 and 2020, but you can't do it before finalization. And uh, Becky, let me ask you a question on that. Does it matter whether you're Hague or non-Hague, or does it matter whether um, most countries now the adoptions are finalized in the courts of the country where the child lives? Not always, though. And it used to be there were uh, more countries where the adoption, uh, the parents or the agency are given guardianship, and then the actual adoption takes place in the state where the family lives here in the U.S. Um, so the so is it a Hague-non-Hague distinction or is it a finalized in country or finalized in the U.S. distinction? Well, generally a non-Hague country, um, you would need to readopt in the United States. Um, and then for the Hague countries, yes, you do have that flexibility. As Josh said, sometimes but you have to make that distinction. Um, either you claim the adoption tax credit when it's final in country, um, or you claim it when it is you readopt. You can't claim it um, when it's final in country and then try to turn around and claim it again for the readoption expenses. So if you know that you're going to readopt, um, you you know you need to choose. Of course, a lot of it depends on you know your tax situation. Um, you know, modified adjusted gross income. Um, if if you have, you know, in a qualified employer program, you know, to help, you know, take in the exclusion and the credit. Um, so, but generally, you you have that choice. If you're going to readopt, you can, like you said, you can choose 2019 because it was adoption was final in country, or if you're going to readopt. However, like I said, on a non-Hague country. Um, generally, you need to readopt in the state when you get back to the United States. And again, just pointing out the obvious, you don't get two credits. Right. It is one credit. Yeah. Right. One child, one credit. So the readoption is not a brand new. Exactly. Um, I, yeah. And, I had and, that discussion with someone. And for people, if they're wanting to Google this, um, Revenue Procedure 2005-31 is for the non-Hague countries, and Revenue Procedure 2010-31 is for the Hague countries. 
Okay, now um, let's talk about foster care. Becky, um, when can you claim the adoption tax credit for an adoption through foster care? The year that it is final. So let's say your um, adoption is final um, in 2019 and you have the subsidy agreement and the final judgment adoption, you would claim the adoption tax credit on your 2019 tax return that you're getting ready to do. So whatever tax year that the adoption is final, that is the year that you take the credit. Okay. Now, it gives a good segue into, and Becky, I'd like for you to talk about this as well, um, special needs adoption and uh and then let's also talk at the same time about some of the unique aspects of adopting from how the tax credit applies to adoptions from foster care. Um, when a child um, is declared special needs according to the state's criteria, um, what the IRS considers special needs and what you and I consider special needs is two complete mm -hmm. different things. What the IRS, yes, thank you for pointing that out. What, yeah, what the IRS considers special needs is hard to place. So unless there is a subsidy agreement uh, in place and signed with the adoptive family. So what that means is um, when the, the adoptive family, um, you know, they choose adoption um, of that child and they, they're in foster care, um, they will sign a subsidy agreement with the state and then um, each state has different cri criteria, but if you have that subsidy agreement, whether it's financial or whether it's medical, or it, it doesn't matter what is actually on that subsidy agreement. It does not have to be financial. It's any any subsidy agreement that you have with the state um, that qualifies that child um, as special needs, and that is what qualifies that family for the full amount of the credit with no expenses. And, um, you know, uh, Josh and I hear it, you know, just probably on a daily basis, you know, well, I was told I didn't qualify because I didn't have any expenses. That is not the case. Not on a child adopted from uh, the foster care system. They have, very rarely is a child adopted out of the foster care system without a subsidy agreement. I mean, it does happen, but most of the time, you know, most, uh, I would say 98% of them that I have seen have a subsidy agreement and so that is what qualifies them that is the documentation the subsidy agreement and the final judgment of adoption when you adopt a child out of the foster care system those are the two documents that you need to keep if the irs ever requests more documentation and as we discussed earlier that's always been the issue when it was refundable was documentation so um, you know you 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 need to keep that it has to be a signed and dated subsidy agreement and a signed and dated final judgment of adoption, that is what qualifies that child as special needs. Got it. And and the distinction, I want to make sure that, that it, it didn't, uh, didn't get um, glossed over in your explanation, and that is it, m most people who adopt from foster care will not have expenses that equal the $14,080 uh, tax credit. In fact, many, many people have no expense at all. But you can still apply the credit to your uh, taxable, to your taxes, uh, if you adopt from foster care, even if you have no expenses. Correct. Uh, if it's right. subsidized. Okay. 
if you have a uh, a subsidy agreement Correct. with the uh, with the state, right, a signed dated subsidy agreement, which the vast majority uh, of of special needs do. Now, Josh, let me ask a question because sometimes, and this ha it particularly happens when uh, adopting a very young child or an infant, mm -hmm. the uh, the child, as Becky had said the uh, criteria that oftentimes what states are using to decide whether to offer a subsidy agreement is whether the child is hard to place. And in fact, placing an infant is, is very often not hard. Uh, there are plenty of people. And at the time, the child may not be, the, 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 the caseworker, the state, uh, may not perceive that the child has any special needs are not hard to place and there's no perception that the child uh, has a special need at the time the child's a year old but oftentimes parents are concerned and want to have the state uh, have have access to resources at the state money and as other resources that the state might be able to provide through a subsidy agreement but they don't need it now and the state it would fight them but they get an agreement that says that uh, and it's called different things in different states but it says that if in the future the child develops, and we have reason to believe maybe the child might, you know, prenatal exposure or, or mental health issues with uh, in the uh, biological family. Um, so what about those where it's an agreement, but you're not getting anything um, at, at the time? You're not currently receiving a monthly subsidy. What happens then, Josh? So if you have an adoption assistance agreement, and what my contact at the IRS has said, as long as it provides one of three things, these are the three things that are likely to come with an adoption assistance agreement. Um, the first one is the financial payment, and that's the one that you're basically saying some families are not getting. Um, they can be called deferred agreements, dormant, future needs, um, lots of different things, high risk. Um, that's the most common thing that's missing in those types of agreements. But most right. of those, mm -hmm come with Medicaid. Um, there are some states where you might have to request the Medicaid. Any family in that circumstance, even if they plan plan to put the child in private insurance, I would always encourage them to take the Medicaid um, if they have to specifically ask for it. And the last thing that can come is reimbursement of non-recurring adoption expenses. Um, sometimes that is a direct reimbursement to the family for out-of-pocket expenses that they had, similar to um, like the adoption tax credit expenses, um, you know, court costs, home study fees, uh, attorney fees, et cetera. Um, and in some states that is directly paid, even though there is an actual agreement, it's directly paid to like the attorney. Um, as long as an agreement has one of those three things, um, that is enough for the IRS. I've never been able to get it in writing, despite me trying for a good hard decade. Um, that that is good enough for the IRS, and we would go to battle for anybody um, if they were denied on that. Um, Absolutely. Because it's, it is proof of special needs, and that's always been our position, because I deal with adoption subsidy. That's what I deal with when I'm not dealing with adoption tax credit. Um, the one state that I know of that has been an issue, um, and I need to circle back to them, in Georgia, when they do the zero dollar agreement, it doesn't provide any of those. Doesn't provide the Medicaid, doesn't provide the reimbursement of non-recurring adoption expenses. And so that I know at least one case where they were denied it, and unfortunately, because there was no benefit in that otherwise agreement, 
um, we were not able to successfully really challenge that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. So just wanted to cover because I think there is some confusion. Oh, there definitely um, is. <laughs> That's why I've been trying to get a hard answer for, you know, since I think 05 or 06, I was trying to get a hard answer. Got it. Let me pause and remind everyone that this show is brought to you by the generous support of the Jockey Being Family Foundation. They are our partners in underwriting this show, and they are looking for adoption agencies who want to provide continued support to their families after adoption because Jockey Being Family believes in post-adoption. They know that that's where the, when the rubber meets the road, so to speak. They have a program called their Jockey Bean Family Backpack Program that provides newly adopted children with their own adorable backpack. It's personalized with their initials and it's filled with a, a bear and a blanket and a tote bag with parenting resources for their parents. This is free for the agency and free for the families and of course free for the child. Uh, all you need to do is let your agency know about this wonderful resource. They can sign up at the jockeybeingfamily.com website. Just click on uh, the word backpack. All right. So, Josh, what income level is excluded from claiming the adoption tax credit? Um, for 2019, um, if you your adjusted gross income or modified adjusted gross income is above, uh, is equal to or above uh Two hundred and fifty-one thousand one hundred and sixty, um, you will not qualify. And between uh, two hundred two hundred eleven thousand one hundred sixty and the two hundred fifty-one thousand one hundred sixty, it's always a forty thousand range. You will start to fade out, phase out any credit that you're um, able to claim that year. Okay. Uh, Becky, we have a question from Alexandria. She says, can the credit be carried over uh, if you don't use it all? What if you can't use it all in one year because you don't have $14,080 in federal tax liability? How long can you carry it over? The, the credit is actually a six-year credit. So what that means is the first year that you claim the credit, um, you can um, use that credit. And what you do not use you can carry it forward for up to five years. So um, whichever comes first, whether you use all of the credit up or that five-year carry-forward credit um, time frame, whichever comes first. So, yes, you can absolutely carry it forward. You have to carry it forward on your tax return yourself. The IRS will not carry it forward for you. So even if you have zero tax liability, as we discussed before, you need to make sure and, um, you know, claim that credit and carry it forward each year. So you have, once after the initial year of claiming the credit, you have five years to carry it forward. Okay, excellent. All right, um, Josh, will the adoption tax credit offset self-employment tax or will it only offset income tax liability? It does not. Um, anything under other taxes, which is, uh, that's where the self-employment tax shows up, it does not um, offset that. Just the income taxes, federal income tax. Okay. And Becky, we are seeing, and which is, this is a very good thing, we are seeing more employers offer benefits for adoption, which is a wonderful thing. And we are, we're thrilled that that is happening. Um, so let's say you are a, one of the fortunate ones who, has, uh, who works for a, a, a company or an employer 
that does provide some amount of benefits uh, for their employees who adopt. How is that handled? Uh, so you, let's say you get 10,000 from your company to help offset costs. How is that handled in conjunction with the adoption tax credit? Well, you have a, a couple of situations. If, if you have a qualified adoption program through your employer, um, you can exclude up to the same amount um, of income as the credit, um, which for 2019 is $14,080. It just cannot be for the same expenses. So let's say for an example, you have uh, you know, twenty-eight above twenty-eight thousand dollars in qualified expenses, you can take a credit for fourteen thousand eighty dollars, and exclude up to fourteen thousand and eighty dollars. And generally, with most employers, um, the adoption is generally has to be final, and then you know the employer reimburses um, the employee, uh, and and there's a code on the W two that will reflect that. Um, but a lot of people don't know about that income exclusion. And it's, if your employer does not have that program, it's not hard to do. Um, Dave Thomas Foundation has a great PDF packet on their website. You can take it to your HR department. They actually don't even have to um, uh, give a grant or a, a reimbursement. The only actual qualification is, is that they offer it to all employees and therefore they can do that income exclusion um, $14,000 of your income not being taxed is huge so mm -hmm. you know if, if your employer does not have a qualified um, adoption program and you're in the process of adoption absolutely download that PDF take it to your HR department and it's very very easy to um, to get that in place. Yeah, excellent. Very good point. And that is the Dave Thomas Foundation. And uh, they, uh, they also have a uh, adoption in the workplace uh, award every year where they list the best mm -hmm. uh, companies who provide, uh, uh, provide benefits and other adoption uh, support. And there's quite so, a few name brand companies out there um, that actually uh, have some very good em employee benefits for adoption. Okay, perfect. Earlier we've talked about documentation uh, and, and we, we spoke of it, uh, uh, it, particularly about how onerous it was during those golden years when the adoption tax credit was refundable. But what about now? It is a non-refundable credit. Uh, so what type of documentation, so I'm asking two questions. What type of documentation should you submit with your taxes? And Josh, I'm going to ask you that. But then I'm going to contrast that by asking Becky, what type of documentation should you keep in your records? So first of all, Josh, what type of documentation should you submit with your taxes in order to prove that you qualify for the adoption tax credit? Unless it's a domestic infant, not final adoption, in which case you don't have a Social Security number or an A10, and you're um, having to paper file, when you, at which point we were suggesting earlier in the program that you send information about the agency um, or attorney that you're working with. Um, you don't send anything. You e-file and you do not actually send anything. Some people want to, don't. 
that's it will confuse the IRS and you don't want to do that. Yeah, you don't want to, yeah, a confused IRS agent is not a good thing. No. And, and you, twice now we've mentioned A10, that stands for Adoption Taxpayer Identification Number. All right, Becky, what type of documentation should you keep in your records? Because in case, just in case, and we hope this doesn't happen, but if the IRS decides to audit you or just request additional information, even short of an audit, what do you need to have in your files? Um, depending on the type of adoption, for the foster care adoption, what you need to keep is the final judgment of adoption and the subsidy agreement. As I said before, those must be signed and dated. Um, for domestic adoption, um, you will need to keep uh, the different places, call it different things, adoption decree, uh, final decree of adoption, but basically the final judgment of adoption, um, the home study, um, and, you know, copies of all of your expenses, um, those are the things that are required. And same for international. Um, you will need the final decree of adoption, final judgment of adoption, um, home study, and then uh, a good copy of all of your expenses. Um, those are the things that you really need to keep um, in an IRS marked envelope. And if they ever do request more documentation, you know, don't panic. Um, just make very good copies. And um, whenever you send those copies in, make sure and put whoever is the primary taxpayer on the tax return. Make sure and put their Social Security number at the top of every page. Because sometimes um, documentation doesn't necessarily get back to the tax return. But if you put the... the primary taxpayer um, social security number at the top of every page, um, it will get back to their file. So those are the things that you need to basically keep in, a, in an envelope marked IRS. And, and probably mark the year that uh, yes, one envelope per year. Okay, excellent. And, and one thing that, uh, let me go back, because I don't think we specifically mentioned this, and it comes up not infrequently. Uh, and that is going back to when we were talking about special needs adoptions. Um, and, and when Becky said what the IRS considers special needs and what you and I consider special needs it often differs. And that is particularly the case with international adoptions. There could be a child with Down syndrome, a child cleft lip, cleft palate, a child with very obvious special need by anybody's definition other than the IRS, because children with special needs adopted internationally are not treated the same as special needs adopted from foster care. Um, anything you want to add, uh, Josh, to that? Yeah, I mean, it's in U.S. code, uh, international adoptions cannot be considered special needs for right. the purpose of the IRS. However, uh, international adoptions, even if they have lower agency fees and stuff like that, are probably going to exceed the 14000 amount right. of the adoption tax credit. So it's it it probably doesn't matter. But the, the thing I do want to stress um, on this is the child has to have an adoption assistance agreement. Without that adoption assistance agreement, even if everybody else says, yes, this child is got a disability or something like that, they're not special needs for the purpose of the IRS. They, uh, it, they, they've got more explicit since a family lost a case um, in tax court um, where, where it all 
uh, centered around the state determined is in, in the federal law and the, the child met that state's definition of special needs, but they weren't adopted through the state. And so there was never a state determination. And that's where the IRS has gotten far more explicit on it has to be an adoption assistance agreement. And, and that's a yes. And that, thank you. And that's a great uh, lead in to my final question. And that is kinship adoptions. Uh, Becky, how are they handled now? Very often, uh, well, let's let's divide, let's separate them into two categories. One, kinship adoption, where the child was never involved with the foster care system, versus kinship adoptions where a child is involved with the foster care system. Becky, kinship adoptions that are not through the foster care system, they would be for expenses only, um, up to that maximum amount. Um, for 2019 to 14,080 um, would be what they would be able to claim. If the child was through the foster care system and um, they have that that uh, subsidy agreement, whether it's you know financial or not, um, but they have that subsidy agreement in place, then they would qualify for the full amount of the credit with no little or no expenses. So it, it all it all hinges um, on if they're through that foster care system or not. Like I said if they are if the kinship adoption was not through the foster care system, it would be for expenses only up to the maximum amount of the credit. Um, but if they were involved through the foster care system, um, even though it's a kinship adoption, but if they are through the foster care system and that subsidy agreement is in place then yes, they would qualify for the full amount of the credit with no expenses. And all of this is is um, a, a good warning for families to consider getting and, and negotiating for a subsidy agreement. Uh, sometimes families don't do that because they feel like they don't need the money uh, or they for whatever reason. And so there are some advantages to having that subsidy agreement from the tax credit standpoint. Let me pause here to remind people that this show, as well as all the resources we provide at Creating a Family, could not happen without uh, the support of agencies who believe in our mission of providing uh, support both pre-adoption and post-adoption and to continue throughout the lifespan of adoptive families and foster families to continue to support them. One such partner is Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer home study only services as well as full service infant adoption, international home study and post adoption services, as well as foster to adopt programs. You can get more information about them at their website, vistadelmar.org. And in addition, we also have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and specialize in placement of children with Down syndrome and other special needs. They also uh, do kinship adoptions, and we thank them for their support. Okay, well, thank you guys. This has been, as always, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, we, we, uh, it's, it's such an interesting topic. So thank you so much, Josh Kroll and Becky Wilmoth, for being with us today to talk about the adoption tax credit. Let me remind everyone 
that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional. Thank you, everyone, and I will see you next week.